As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome. The Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me for this week's edition of In the Pocket, it is longtime NFL quarterback Chase Daniel. Chase, how you doing, man? Good. Good, man. Really good. It's a fun time of year. I think this is the 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 best weekend of the year, and that's divisional round. Because you sort of – Super Wild Card Weekend should have been called Super Wild Card Blowout Weekend. I mean, there's one good game. (laughs) And now you finally get to see the one seeds in action. Now you get to see uh, everything come together. And, I mean, there's some really good matchups. So I'm looking forward to this weekend for sure. It's my favorite football weekend of the year. Because you only have four games to focus on, which is fantastic. And the four games typically include the best teams in the NFL. Look at specifically the AFC, which we're going to get to a little bit later on the show. We were talking last week, how many guys would you take over CJ Stroud right now? And the list is not very long. And the three guys definitively that I think you would put ahead of him on that list are Mahomes, Josh Allen, and Lamar Jackson. Well, those are the other three guys that are going to be playing in the AFC <laughs> divisional round with CJ Stroud this weekend. So those four matchups, even if the Texans are you know, not as far along in their team building process, they're not technically a wild card because they won their division, but they're a wild card in the AFC playoffs in terms of their place in the hierarchy. But even with considering that their quarterback is playing at such a high level that you could argue those are the four teams you'd want to watch this weekend. And on the other side, even though the Packers were a wild card team, I think you still want to see Jordan Love playing this weekend based on what he's been doing recently. So there is a lot of good football on tap. And we're going to get into some of that a little bit later in the show. But I want to start with some news and some of the moments from the coaching carousel here over the last few days. This is a discussion I'd wanted to have with you even when I was thinking about him potentially leaving New England. And that's about Bill Belichick and his future. So Bill Belichick interviews with the Falcons this week, which is crazy in and of itself. To read that the Falcons have completed a head coaching interview with Bill Belichick. First of all, what, how does that go? What is a head coaching interview with Bill Belichick? Like, <laughs> well, like why, why, why the Falcons? Like I, he, the second he was let go or fired or mutually parted ways, whatever. Um, he was linked to the Falcons. It, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. You got three good offensive pieces. I get that. There's, no quarterback. Their defense is just average. Um, and, I mean, they're in a winnable division. I, I guess that's it. I don't, I don't know. And when I first heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, he. I'm sure he flew all the way down there and went in person and did a whole interview. And they asked him, yeah, right. No. No, like, I thought it was hilarious, honestly, how the Falcons were like, in one sentence, we have interviewed Bill Belichick for head coach on their Twitter. And I was just like, oh, that is going to get make its rounds. It's got like 15 million views now. And this is how I sort of see it went down and see it happening. Uh, Arthur Blank flies up on his jet to New England area where Belichick is at. And Belichick interviews him. That's how I see it. You don't interview the best coach of all time. I'm sorry. Like, he's just stuck in his ways. He's like, Belichick's probably like, okay, come to me. What do you guys have to offer? How much are you going to pay me? 
What are our pieces? Am I going to have control over the roster? All that stuff. So coaches like that, which they don't come around very often, if ever, like this to go in an interview. Um, I, I bet that's how the interview went down. And then the Falcons announced yesterday, too, that they had interviewed Jim Harbaugh. And I guarantee it was the same thing. Jim Harbaugh's interviewing them. So there's sort of type, there's sort of coaches up there in this little atmosphere that you don't really get interviewed. You interview the people and you interview the owners and you interview the GMs if there's GMs there. So it's uh, it was hilarious when it came out. And my first thought was like, first of all, Belichick interviewed you. Second thought was like, why the Falcons? I think the Falcons maybe because they're they have an urgency to get this done. They're probably going to pay him a decent amount of money. Arthur Blank is in his 80s. I don't think they would have moved on from Arthur Smith just to make a lateral decision or a lateral move to another coordinator, let's say. I assume that they were going big game hunting in this process, and Bill Belichick was one of the names that may have been on their minds. Going back to the them interviewing or him interviewing them part of this, I don't think that's how it should go. Based on how things ended in New England and based on how the last few years went, if I was going to hand my team over to Bill Belichick at this stage of his career, I'm going to be honest with you. I got some questions. I got some questions about how the quarterback was developed there. I got some questions about who his offensive coordinator is going to be. I've got some questions about his roster values and how that roster was built in New England over the last couple of years. So if that really was the case where, and we don't know the answer to this, but if that was the dynamic where Bill Belichick is the one that's asking Arthur Blank about the franchise in order to vet him. I think that's the first misstep in this because I would have some very real questions if I was going to hand my team, which even if it's not complete, still has some young pieces, still has some room to grow, still has some decent offensive weapons. And I think realistically with the right quarterback would have some aspirations to win the NFC South next year. I absolutely would have some real questions for Belichick as to what his plan was for how he was going to get me to that place, no matter what the 25 year history of his time with the Patriots looks like. That's interesting. I mean, I can see it both ways. Uh, but when you're the best and the greatest head coach of all time, like he's going to get the all-time win record. He'll, he'll go down as the number one best head coach of all time. I don't know. First of all, I don't know if Belichick would – First, okay, let's just rewind. I've heard a lot of people out there say that, oh, do you think Belichick takes a gap year? No. Do you think that Belichick uh, – people are like, Belichick's not coaching next year. He's – are you kidding me? He's 15 wins in, away from the all-time win record. The dude is coaching. He's too old to take a gap year. Well, Sean Payton, Sean Payton's like 10 or 15 years younger than him. So let's just dismay all of that. And, and secondly, also, I think I Sean Payton know. enjoyed his time on TV. I think Sean Payton enjoys himself a little bit more than Bill Belichick, period. I'm not sure Bill Belichick's going to be able to fill a free year of time away from football in the way that Sean Payton, I think, was pretty apt to do. Yeah, no, he, he he won't know what to do with himself. And look, I just think, um, yeah, I would just love, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. Because, because, look, I'm sure Arthur got his questions in, but I'm sure they were not even remotely as in-depth as you would other. And I guarantee you, like, at these coaching interviews, or at least what I've heard, there's a lot of people in the room. Obviously, you have your time with the owner, but all different aspects of the organization are in, and they're just peppering you with questions. <laughs> that ain't... I, he, Arthur might have asked what you said, but it was not in that situation. And it was a very relaxed, like, like, let's be honest. If you didn't like, if the Atlanta Falcons, we're talking about the Atlanta Falcons. If the Atlanta Falcons didn't like what Bill Belichick said, they would still hire him. They would still hire him. He's the best guy. So that's so it does like they would, they would, they'd be. And if that ever leaked, which I'm sure it would from a Falcons source, if Bill Belichick turned, they would not hear the end of it. They've been a, a disaster of a franchise the past few years. Other after Matt Ryan, it's been ridiculous. Like no, no hard feelings. Arthur Smith, my guy Dave Ragone was OC there. I love that guy. But if you got a chance to land the biggest fish of all, you just say, "Come on over. Here's a blank check. Turn our franchise around for two years. Go retire, and then we're gonna give it to somebody else." Like that to me, it, I just, but I, I still don't. I, get, I don't understand the Falcons. I don't understand the Falcons. I, I don't. <laughs> I, I That would not surprise me if that was the dynamic. I think there are drawbacks to that dynamic, though. And beyond the questions that I just asked and what's going to happen offensively and where they're going to find the quarterback, what that process is going to look like. And I honestly think that 
if Bill Belichick does come to me, and I might be reading the tea leaves wrong here, it seems like that would indicate that they would probably try to go a veteran quarterback route rather than developing a quarterback. And you I don't have to. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and honestly, I think that that might Russell be Wilson better. Russell Wilson and Bill Belichick? I mean, Kirk Cousins is potentially available. I mean, there are a bunch of different guys who theoretically Justin could Fields. be on the market. Justin Fields? Well, that's that. Justin Fields is even closer to the young quarterback plan where yeah. I would have a little bit of question about the development based on what happened with Mac Jones. Even if we throw that out, even if we ignore some of the finer details there, what I wanted to ask you is that if you were a player in that building and you are somebody who's been there for a couple of years, you're a five, six year veteran, Arthur Smith moves on. And for everything that Arthur Smith failed to do as head coach of the Falcons, I think that the relationship he had with his players was pretty darn strong. And I think that the players liked playing for Arthur Smith. It wasn't a situation where he had lost the locker room, anything like that. I think that Atlanta, again, a level of urgency where they really wanted to go take a swing at this. If you were one of those guys that had a pretty good time playing for the Atlanta Falcons for the last couple of years, and you heard that they were going to hire Bill Belichick, what would your reaction be? I hate it. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Like, you, like a five, six-year vet? Oh, because, I've, oh, dude, I've been a part of the Patriot way. And Matt Patricia and and I've heard there were some differing, but everyone like we need to give Bill Belichick his flowers because he's gonna be like he will go down as the best coach of all time. However, there's a lot of shit that went on in that building between Tom Brady, between and I'm I'm dying to watch. I, I don't know, it's a documentary on the dynasty of the New England Patriots, and they released the trailer, it's on Apple. A couple weeks ago, and the most telling quote to me, uh, I got to get this right, was from Danny Amendola, who I played with, with, with Matt Patricia in Detroit. And Danny Amendola said, we worked for Bill, we played for Brady. Like, if that's not a more telling situation of, yeah, we put it up because we were constantly, we put up with his crap and the, the organization's crap, not necessarily Bill's, but everything about the Patriot way and just like, we're going to scare you into playing away. Don't play free, play nice. Like that's a telling quote. I wouldn't like it. I, I, I've been a part of the Patriot way. I think the Patriot way is overrated. I think that the only coaches from the Patriot way to succeed uh, from the Patriot way was Vrabel and he just got fired. And even and that, for he what wasn't he on the staff there. He, was, yeah, he wasn't on the staff exactly. in New England. And I've actually he heard, I've actually heard that they, in Vrabel, for the people that was there, he took like 20% of what Bill did and then did his own culture. So that, that even, but you look at, you look at the, it just doesn't work out. Like, do you have, I mean, you probably are prepared, but I'm off the top of my head. Um, I can't think of any Patriot way coach that have that has come from the organization of Bill Belichick that has had any success, sustained success anywhere. Do you know of it? I mean, no. there's no, there's no, because one. most so of his, that to me is telling. His offensive coordinators were Charlie Weiss, who went and coached in college after he was done with New England, and then Josh McDaniels. Those are the two offensive coordinators that they've had, and Josh McDaniels failed twice as a head coach. On the defensive side, the defensive coordinators that they've had mostly have just been assistants other places. Like Dean, Dean Pease went to Baltimore at one point, and then Dean Pease went to Tennessee later on, and then to, go to Atlanta, oddly enough. I mean, for the most part, they've been in New England for almost the entirety of his run. So we haven't seen that many guys get hired away, and the ones that did failed. Yeah, I, I think that <clears throat> it's such an interesting situation for me and Bill Belichick and the New England dynasty. Like, I almost wish, from a, 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 a like my perspective, that Bill Belichick would have lasted maybe one or two more years in New England, got the win thing, and then just retired and rode off into the sunset. Because in reality, if Bill Belichick goes to Atlanta or or L.A. or wh wherever he ends up, he's going to end up somewhere. I just imagine all the effort, all the time, all the stuff he's going to need from within to really change the culture of an organization. It's not going to happen overnight. It's a hard reset because anywhere that he goes, these head coach openings are completely, completely different than the Patriot way. And so that to me is like, man, it's going to be, if Bill Belichick goes, it's going to be a two or three year deal to where people are really going to have to buy in. And I think, I hate to say it, but 
we're finally going to get to understand, was it Brady or was it Belichick? Because if he goes to a new place and he doesn't have success over a two or three year period and he gets the win record and he, and he I think you're going to say it's Brady. I think it's a combination of both right now. That's a huge topic of debate, but man, it's, it's players, not plays. But over 20 years, if you look at the stages of the Patriots dynasty, you look at what happened in the first five years of it. I think we all have to admit that Tom Brady was not Tom Brady for the first, I don't know, let's say three or four years of who the Patriots were. Maybe there's a shift between like 04 and 05 that happens where he becomes a star level quarterback, but their defense did a lot of the heavy lifting in those early years with those first couple Super Bowls. And then they didn't win a Super Bowl for a very long time. And so I think that it's a combination. And I think we, we talked about this. I can't remember. I think it was with Chad Graff yesterday when we were discussing the Patriots, but I think that that idea of we put, we coached, we played for Bill or we, we worked for Bill. We played for Tom is an interesting look at how the culture was set there. Because early on, I think that Bill Belichick probably did set the culture for the first decade or so of who they were. But after that, I think you probably make an argument that Tom Brady was the one that carried a lot of that culture. So I don't think it's it was it Brady or was it Belichick for the 25 years of the Patriots dynasty. I think it was a little bit of both for a long time. And I think as we've come into a new era of the NFL, it's fair to wonder if Bill Belichick is made for this era of the NFL. And that's the biggest question that I have. And Gerard Mayo today, during his introductory press conference, said some interesting things. Two things that jumped out to me. One, he talked about how you need to meet players where they are with this era and this with players that are of this age. And I, I'm not saying that was a shot at Bill Belichick, but I think that is a declarative statement about what kind of environment I want to create within the building. I don't think you ever would have said or heard from Bill Belichick, yeah, you really need to get to know your guys and you need to form relationships with them and you need to really understand who they are no, on their level. Based. Yes. It's all fear-based there. So I think, and again, in 2007 even, 15 years ago, Maybe that sort of mindset where you create this kind of Machiavellian feel over your entire organization, maybe that's okay. But now I don't think that's nearly as workable with this generation of players. So that's why I don't think it's a Belichick or Brady thing. I think just over time, things change. And as things have changed, I wonder if we've gotten further and further away from a, a type of player and a type of atmosphere within an NFL building where Bill Belichick can have that sort of control. Well, I think as things, as, it's a great point. As things change and as times have changed, which they have changed even from when I was in, in 09 to 2023, whatever, um, like he had Brady, so he didn't have to change. Okay, so like he was 219 and 64 with Brady, 78% of the time they won games. The four years post Brady where he hasn't changed, he hasn't gotten a quarterback to fill the role, their defense, their personnel on offense hasn't been good. He's 29 and 38, one playoff appearance, zero AFC East titles. So I do think that this times have changed. He hasn't been able to change with it now it is a personnel issue it is a quarterback issue it is a offensive receiver perspective and and stuff like that but i do think that there's going to be some change needed and there's going to be a need to hire um a younger innovative offensive coordinator a younger innovative defensive coordinator bill's always going to have his hand on the defense but i do think there has to be some type of change for it to work. Bill can be the CEO type guy and lead with vision, but I think you got to be able to trust and to hire. You can't you can't go into a new team and hire this Bill O'Brien guy or this Josh McDaniels guy. It's not going to work. And if, in fact, that would be the worst thing that could happen. You got to hire when Belichick is, you got to hire an innovative head, head or innovative OC and DC, in my opinion. I think that is where, if you're trying to flip this to the other side and say, how could this work? That's where it begins. You have a conversation with Terry Fontenot, with, who's the GM in Atlanta right now, with leadership and say, okay, let's make sure we're going outside of where you would typically look for a guy to fill this role on the offense. And then on the personnel side, if he's, ta if he's paired with just a normal GM and a normal front office that's picking the players, does that put him in a position where he's able to succeed in a way he couldn't in New England because he was picking bad players? If he's just allowed to coach with an offensive coordinator that maybe comes from a different place and can bring some modern ideas, 
How does that look? And I think you could spin it in your mind to say it was the pl- the players were the problem in New England. He picked them, so it ultimately comes down to him. But the talent level was the problem in New England. If you put him in a more traditional setting, can he still be successful? And if you're the Falcons, I think that's the story you have to tell yourself. Yeah, and that's a you you just answered my question um, when I asked when we started the show why why the Atlanta Falcons, and you said Terry Fontenot. And I was with Terry Fontenot and Mickey Loomis in New Orleans. And um, Sean Payton was in New Orleans forever. Sean Payton is a massive, massive Bill Parcells, Bill Belichick fan. And so I think they got enthralled, and Terry Fontenot might have got enthralled, like, let's hire this guy. So that makes sense. Terry Fontenot's there. I just wanted to uh, uh, clarify that because uh, that, that makes a lot of sense in my opinion. We'll see how it goes, and it's going to be a fascinating thing to monitor because I think that's the job that might make the most sense, and it does seem like there's a decent amount of smoke around it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's stick in the NFC South very quickly. P. Carmichael out as the Saints offensive coordinator. He was there for 15 years. And obviously the setup changes after Sean Payton leaves. He's now the play caller. It's a different sort of job as the offensive coordinator. But I wanted to talk about this because it's a situation you're very close to. You worked with Pete for years when you were with the Saints. Talking to people around that situation here over the last couple of days, what is your read on why this was the time for Dennis Allen and for the Saints to make a move there? Yeah, I think ultimately it came down to just wanting to start fresh. Look, look, Pete Pete had been there since Sean Payton got there in 06. That's a long time to be somewhere. Okay, he was the longest tenured OC and it wasn't even close. And <laughs> who the longest every- tenured coaches in the league, let alone offensive yeah. coordinators. Yes. And so I think it got a little bit um, just stale at the end and not necessarily his offensive play calling, but I think for both sides, including Pete, from what I'm hearing, it was, it it was a welcome change. Look, it it sucks anytime you get fired, right? But he's going to have a job. He's probably going to go to Denver with Sean and Joe Lombardi and, and ball out. And I think this was probably a way, um, around ownership for Dennis Allen to keep his job. Hey, we need a new guy because we're stuck with Derek Carr. So ultimately it brings me to, to John Gruden. Like, I I don't know how it will affect his lawsuit against the NFL, but everything I'm hearing down there with DA and Derek Carr, like they still believe in Derek Carr. Derek Carr played really well down the stretch. I don't care what you say numbers wise, he got them in a chance to, potentially get into the playoffs and to win an NFC South. And um, if you go back and look at the times that Derek Carr played his best ball, it was a John Gruden. It was a John Gruden. So I think this is more of like a, Hey, look, we're going to probably go a different way and we're going to go swing big for the fences. Uh, And look, Pete's my guy. Like I loved Pete. Pete taught me how to prepare as an NFL quarterback, he taught me everything I knew uh, about an NFL quarterback style with Joe Lombardi and Drew Brees. So, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about it because it's an unfortunate situation anytime someone gets fired. But ultimately, I think change was good for both sides of the spectrum here. Yeah, It's not surprising to see them move on. I think that the P. Carmichael thing was a way to try to tap into keeping Sean Payton. Let's stick with continuity. Let's see if we can try to hold on to what this model looked like for so long. P. Carmichael, by the way, 
that's the life I would have wanted for the last 15 years. He's hired as the offense coordinator in 09. So you're not the play caller. You're an offensive coordinator of a team with a play calling head coach. And you just get to be there for what a decade, 12 years, essentially with Sean Payton. What what are you making as an offensive coordinator for the saints? Oh man. At least a million, probably a million. Right. So you're making, you're making like a million bucks a year. You live in New Orleans. He's lived in the same house in Destrehan in East New Orleans forever. Hasn't spent any money. Just, He's the cheapest human being of all time. You're just hanging and out down just, there. You just yeah. put it all in the bank. No one ever mentions your name. You never get any heat when things are going poorly because you're not the play caller. And you're making a really nice living, having a really nice life, just hanging out down there. It's a perfect way to live. And now that's over. But for about a decade, I think P. Carmichael had it going pretty well down there. He did. And if you remember in, um, he was hired in, in 06 and then in 2000, I got to make sure this was a long time ago, 2011, when Sean Payton broke his leg or his, turned his knee on the sideline of Tampa that year, um, Pete took over play calling and we ended up as like the third best offense in NFL history in terms of points and yards. So he was calling the plays that entire year once Sean got hurt. So that was sort of his like, oh man, like, yeah. And then the next year he's like, okay, here you go, Sean. You can have it back. Let me just, let me just hang out over here. Before we get into the, the green thing and what comes next, I'm curious, did he ever want to be a head coach? Was that a situation where teams would ask? He just didn't really aspire to it because when you have a guy who's that successful with offenses that have been really good for eight to 10 years, you would have assumed he probably would have gotten more looks for a head coaching job over that time if he had wanted them. He never cared. He never cared about it. He loved his situation in New Orleans. He loved the people that, that he worked man. with. When you had Drew Brees, like there's just some people that are in and, and he's a very, very highly motivated guy. And um you just sometimes you find people that are like, I'm good, man. Like I'm good. Like, like one thing, he's he's one of one of the brightest coaches in terms of X's and O's that I've ever been a part of finding mismatches finding per- like that was the secret sauce him and joe lombardi was a secret sauce in new orleans when they were there and i i think with with pete uh we call him sneaky pete i'm, I'm just li- like flooding back memories of everything that drew and myself and 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 uh pete did but i think the thing with pete was like he never really enjoyed talking to the team or a motivating type team. You know, some some guys are different. They just want to stay in the shadows a little bit and just be X's and O's. He never really enjoyed talking to the team. That's like all it is nowadays as an NFL head coach. So I think it suited him well to just sort of stick back and, and be an OC. I'll be curious what his role will be in Denver if he does end up there because obviously Joe Lombardi is the offensive coordinator. Johnny Morton, who was with Sean for years in New Orleans, has been all around. He's the passing game coordinator, and Davis Webb is the quarterback's coach. And Zach Streif is the O line uh, coach. Yeah. O line coach. Yeah. So, like, there's it's going to happen. I can see him like senior offensive analyst. Pass yeah. Game yeah. 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 Something like that. That, that would not surprise me at all. So let's get to the Gruden part of this because I do think that if you're trying to connect the dots, it does make a lot of sense because of how much Derek Carr succeeded under him. The question for the Saints is, how comfortable are the Saints taking on a guy who was fired for the reasons that John Gruden was fired? I mean, we're, we think that that's going to come up again if he ends up getting the job there. All those emails that came out, the things that he said in, in those messages to Bruce Allen, the reasons that he got fired to be the Raiders head coach, those things haven't gone away. So that becomes a question of how comfortable the Saints are in hiring a guy with that background and how comfortable they should be and how comfortable we should be with that hiring. I think that from the Saints' perspective, this is just me talking about it and thinking about it. Um, when you do something like Gruden did, and, and there have been uh, people that have done things before um, that have sort of gotten forgiven, it, right, wrong, or indifferent, and they always get this second, sometimes third chances, right? I, I can name a lot of players or coaches in the past who have gotten second chances now? Is it long enough from his for like after that? I don't know. I mean, I think the Saints are going to have to deal with it. I think the Saints are probably, if they want to go this way, they're probably in lockstep with the NFL and what needs to happen, right? And they're probably uh, going to get a PR plan around it. And I think at the end of the day, there's definitely going to be some backlash if it happens. And I think eventually it'll just go away, like everything else in our culture seems to just go away. Uh, right, wrong, or indifferent? That's that's how it probably is going to go. And with Gruden, 
I think outside of everything that has happened with him outside of football, I, I think it's a great hire. And I think it, it, the reason it's a great hire is you not only get an OC who's been in the league called amazing, like his vision as an offensive coordinator should not be ever doubted. Like he is. I really liked really watching those Raiders offenses football. over the last yes. couple of years. I really liked watching them. So you get that. And then you get a certified head coach in the building. You get another head coach for Dennis Allen to lean on when things aren't, aren't going right. And when things are maybe being questioned from DA, it's just how much, how is that going to work? Right. DA and Gruden are tight. I don't know. And, and it just, it makes too much sense. Now I, I don't know if they're going to go that route, but if they were, this is Gruden's best chance in my opinion to get back into the league. And it sounds like the only other interview that they've set up so far, the one that I've seen, is that they're looking to interview Dan Pitcher, who is the quarterback's coach. They are interviewing Dan Pitcher, who is the quarterback's coach for the Bengals. And Dan has gotten a couple looks over the last couple of years. He is very well regarded in Cincinnati. I'm surprised he hasn't been a candidate for more open offensive coordinator jobs, including the one in Chicago, frankly. So not surprising at all to see his name potentially connected to this as well. Well, somebody else that you got to keep in mind is is Joe Brady. I think that's an interesting name for me. He spent a ton of time in New Orleans when DA was there as a secondary coach, um, learning that style offense. It's it's gotten a lot. He was in LSU. Like like connect the dots there. If Joe Brady wants to get back, I'm sure he, Joe Brady's going to get a chance to be full time OC in Buffalo. But if not, if not, if something crazy happens, like that's a name to watch. Uh, in my opinion, because I think he's I think he's really done a good job with the Buffalo Bills since he's taken over for Ken Dorsey. If he is naming the full time coordinator, I'm thinking I'm staying in Buffalo. If I have a choice between going to New Orleans to be the offensive coordinator or being Josh Allen's part. offensive coordinator, I think my quickest path to a head coach, if that's what Joe Brady wants, probably goes through my time with Josh Allen. D- d- just my two cents about the situation. All right. Let's turn back to the playoffs here, like we were talking about at the beginning, because even though there weren't that many competitive games this weekend, I think a lot of the games that we saw were eye-opening. Watching C.J. Stroud and Jordan Love absolutely tear it up against very good defenses in their playoff debuts. I wanted to zoom out and just consider these guys, not only for what they did last weekend, but what they've been over the course of the year. Nate and I talked a little bit about this over the last week or so, just what you can really pick up on and learn from what C.J. Stroud and Jordan Love have done. And I wanted to ask you that question because you've taken a look at the position in a way you really never have before now being in your first year in the media. You've gotten to look at the landscape of what quarterback play around the league looks like. What have you learned that we can apply moving forward from the seasons that C.J. Stroud and Jordan Love have had? Well, I mean, there's a lot There's a lot to learn. My first, my first thought when we talked about this was evaluating quarterbacks is such a crapshoot, man. I, like it, it really is. It is so difficult. Like you, you can think, you know, what quarterbacks are going to do. You're going to spend all this time in the off season, scouting, interviewing, putting them through tests, this S two test that CJ, all this, it doesn't matter. It matters what happens between the white lines. Bottom line. Like that's it. And even that doesn't always matter that much when you're evaluating these guys because there is no more, there's no position where context matters more. None. And there are so many layers to the context, even in the NFL, where it's hard to evaluate how good guys are, let alone applying those layers of context to college where there's even more complicating factors to the process. Yeah. I think the biggest thing between CJ Stroud and, and Jordan Love is how they got to where they are today. The biggest thing with Jordan Love is that. He sat for two or three years behind Aaron Rodgers and learned, I don't know how many years, you can look it up, but and learned so three. many different things, three years, and learned so many different things about quarterbacking in general. He probably learned a ton from Aaron Rodgers. He, he looks identical to Aaron Rodgers on the football field. His The way he throws, his footwork, he's jump throwing stuff left and right. And I think with, I think with that becomes, then you become like, Hey, all right, my time is here. The organization picked me 26 or whatever it was in the draft. And man, look at how I was able to sit 
There was no pressure on me whatsoever. I could just sit back and learn. Then the onus becomes on the player. Okay, look, we know you want to play. We don't think you're ready to play right away. We see a potential future for you as a starting quarterback in this league, but there's steps to it. And Jordan Love finally got a shot, and it didn't start very well, but the last eight games of the year have been insane. And his growth has been exponential. And I think the main reason for somebody's growth like that is that you are willing to be able to trust Jordan Love. Like Matt LaFleur had a vision for what this offense could look like under Jordan Love, and you're starting to see both of them shine. And I think you got to have the pieces in place, the organizational structure. And you've seen, you've seen the Packers do it three times now with Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, and Jordan Love, which is crazy to me. There's a stat like I don't even know that the Browns have had like 30 starting quarterbacks or 40 starting quarterbacks in the span that Green Bay's had three. It's insane. And so, like, you're always trying to find that guy. If you have this belief in the front office that you've got your guy, you got to build around him. You have to do everything in your power to be able to make sure he goes out and plays his very best football. And the Green Bay Packers struck gold. I mean, they really did. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the secret sauce is that makes this model work. And I think that's absolutely worth exploring this offseason because let's go back and think about the guys drafted in the first round who did not play at all as a rookie, at least recently. The two guys who come to mind over the last five or six years, one is Patrick Mahomes and one is Jordan Love. Every single other quarterback drafted in the first round, if he wasn't the day one starter, he started as a rookie at some point. Okay. Kenny Pickett, Justin Herbert, only because of the weird situation with Tyrod Taylor. Kyler Murray was the day one starter. Daniel Jones started as a rookie. Baker Mayfield started immediately as a rookie. Sam Darnold, Josh Allen started as a rookie. Josh Rosen. Lamar was later in the year, but Lamar did play as a rookie, even though it was not as much as all these other guys. Trubisky was a day one starter. Deshaun Watson played as a rookie. Jared Goff played as a rookie. Carson Wentz, as you know very well. Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota. Blake Bortles, I can't remember if Blake Bortles. Oh my gosh. I had no idea we were going to bring up Blake Bortles. Well, I'm, Bortles I'm literally going as far back hilarious. as I can to find guys no, who that's played hilarious. Did. I'm glad So Blake we Bortles did. did start as a rookie. Okay. Menzel played a little bit. EJ Manuel played as a rookie. Andrew Luck played as a rookie. Robert Griffin, Ryan Tannehill, Brandon Whedon. So I think the only guy in the last like 15 years, other than Jordan Love and Patrick Mahomes, that did not play at all as a rookie was Jake Locke. No. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's wild. And, and if you remember Mahomes, it was the very last game of the year against Denver. That's right. That That's right. But, played but one it, was game. One, it was one game. It was one game. It's still, yes. it's still, it still matters. It's one and game. Jordan and Jordan Love he, has played before, right? Jordan Love yeah. has played one or two starts here and there. But I, I, but I do think that that's a funny story because I'm glad you forgot about the one the Mahomes start with, yeah, with Jordan Love. I mean, he balled out in Denver and they sort of were like, okay, this is what we have. I remember a couple of those plays. He played with some backups and, I draw the line between Love and Mahomes. I'm glad you brought that point up because uh, everything I've heard out of KC was when the, the Chiefs leapfrogged the Saints to grab Mahomes. They were bullish on him, man. Everyone was, right? Like the athletic ability, everything about him. But it was also the time when Alex Smith probably had, in 2016, his best year ever. Okay? And, um, and he was he awesome was, in 2017. He was really, really good. Yes, yes. And then he was awesome in 2017 when they drafted Mahomes. And so I know that when the Chiefs drafted Mahomes and they set, they had a plan in place. And Andy reads all about plans. And you don't deviate from that plan. Like even if Alex wasn't playing, I think that, that, that Andy wanted Patrick to come in. And it's very well-versed, right? It's very well-written about like everything that Alex meant that did to, to admit to uh, Mahomes. Mahomes is super grateful for it because he showed him not only how to play the game a little bit, but it was more the off-field stuff. How do you get ready? How do you prepare? How do you watch film? How do you do this? How do you do that? And I think, and I know that when the Chiefs drafted Mahomes, they had uh, their quarterback coach, Mike Kafka, and they had their OC uh, at the time, Matt Nagy, uh, in the same meeting room. So they were running meetings with the quarterbacks and Mahomes would break off and he would go with Kafka 
and he would just be like, yeah, look, we're going to, we're going to learn the game plan because you're the backup, but we're going to work on just you. We're going to do everything yeah. we can to just make sure your development is right. We don't want to rush it. You don't have to be rushed. We want to make sure it's done right. And you got to imagine that's what happened in green Bay. I thought that was the best thing that Andy Reid had ever done with uh, Mahomes was like, Hey, you're you take the pressure off of you. Let's figure out and practice what you do well. Then let's see if we can take it over to the games. And then when the full-time starter and the games, let's go to the AFC championship game. Like it's just, it's wild. I wonder, and again, I don't know what the secret sauce is. And we can talk about this a little bit because I do think it's worth getting into. As we've seen these examples of guys sitting you know, the entirety of their rookie year, or most of their rookie year, and really getting some time behind the starter and getting to work on themselves, getting to work on their deficiencies, even with Rodgers, right? Think about what Rodgers was mechanically at Cal in that Jeff oh, Tedford offense. Jeff Tedford. Rigid it was. <laughs> and then yeah. he gets to sit behind Far for a little bit, and you watch him play the moment that he gets in or when we start, when we see him as a starter for the first time, and mechanically, he looked nothing like he did when he was playing for Jeff Tedford at Cal. So I think that time to just be like, okay, and in Mahomes' case, it was kind of the opposite, right? He was a little bit too free and a little bit too loose when he was at Texas Tech. So you get time to just work on what is the best calibration of who I can be as an NFL starter. Because the time but the time you're drafted in May, late April, early May, and week one, that's not nearly enough time to kick those bad habits or really drill down on, okay, what do I need to tweak? What do I need to change? And maybe that's it's that simple. Maybe it's just about being able to really break it all down and build it back up over the course of 18 months rather than having to start right away or being the day one starter at training camp. So if those are the little secrets to this, if that is kind of the secret sauce to this entire process, I think it would behoove teams to try to follow that. If you can... Can you make sure that when you draft a guy, hopefully from a position of strength, you can have a succession plan like this where he can sit for a year? Because if this continues to succeed, I would not be surprised to see more and more teams look for it. And I know there are teams that are trying to do it. I think in an ideal world, there are NFL franchises who would be following this. It's just difficult to pull off and stick the landing. Well, the, that's the that's the biggest thing. The the level of quarterback play is just there's like three or four or five, six guys that are at the top, and it's just sort of everyone else. There's a middle level, but the quarterback play is, in essence, other than those 10 or 12 guys, just not very good. And so when teams are drafting this low, they have a chance to get their franchise. They want to put them on the field right away, and that exactly. leads me into C.J. Stroud because what he is doing this year with – just being forced into play on a franchise that had won 10 games in the prior three years before his arrival. And they have now won 11 games. They have the AFC South division title. It's mind blowing because I'm telling you, it's not easy as we just talked about to play as a rookie. This guy doesn't look like a rookie. And when you break down the film, everything that he brings on the field is I almost can't believe it when I see it. I can't the release believe it. the accuracy, the uh, the amount of ownership in the offense. That's a difficult offense to learn. There's a lot of run game checks in that Shanahan system with Bobby Sloak. He's got to get all those down. He's got to make sure he gets to the right play. The amount of trust I've seen from Bobby Sloak as the year has gone on with C.J. Stroud to get in and out of the right plays, with C.J. Stroud to make some of these throws. Like, people are like, oh, he did this in college. No, he didn't. I'm sorry. Guys were wide open. It was a shotgun, throw him around offense. And when people tell me that, I'm like, you don't watch film. You don't watch film. Yeah, he had success because he was Ohio State. You look at some of the pockets at Ohio State versus some of the pockets versus Houston Texans team where he's no-stepping and throwing like this, and it's an accurate 40, 45 40 to 45 yard throw down the field in a BB like, come on. No, he's not doing it. And so that to me is like why it's so impressive, not because of the physical traits, but because of everything else off the freaking field that comes with the franchise quarterback that comes with the star power that comes with you won 11 games in your first year that comes with, we have a new head coach that comes with, we're a franchise that just can't win all of that pressure. It, it doesn't phase them. That to me is what's insane. It's everything. 
because I, I think that's totally fair. The his composure in the pocket, clearly the way that he affects the locker room. D'Amico Ryan's was talking about that recently. The fact that that guy just had the locker room even at 22 years old, which is a huge part, I think, of just being a franchise quarterback in the NFL is having that control and having that presence among all those other guys, especially guys that are however much older than you. But to me, it's that combina- that combined with the physical skill set. He, he is special. I, there's just no way around it for me. He is a special thrower of the football. And I totally agree with you. I watched probably four games, five games of him at Ohio State last year before we talked about him pre-draft. I really liked him. I really liked what I saw from him watching the Michigan game back last from last year, watching the Georgia game back from last year. I, I thought that he was the accuracy was impressive. The ball placement was impressive. I thought he was underrated out of structure those last couple games of the year when they were playing better defenses. You could see that. But even as someone who liked him, there is no way you could ever have imagined anything like this. If you could have, he would have been the number one pick in the draft. It wouldn't have even been a conversation. He wasn't. There There were questions about him coming in. And I think that there's going to be revisionist history in this where people are going to look back and be like, oh, we should have known this. Even as somebody who liked him, you never could have known that he would have been this sort of player. But he really does just look like the natural Some of the things that he's doing are just different physically and with the football than other guys are capable of, and he did it right away. So like you just alluded to, there are different ways to do this, but I think it's important when we have guys like this who are standing out as rookies, aren't just functional, aren't just running the offense, but look like stars in their first full season as starters – we should keep our ear to the ground and try to figure out what we can learn from this sort of stuff. And I promise you that's what NFL teams are going to do from this. No doubt. And that's the crazy thing is like, as a rookie, you're doing this as a rookie, like you're overwhelmed as a rookie. You you've been playing football for two straight years. You don't get a break and he hasn't hit the rookie wall. In fact, he's breaking down the rookie wall and that it's real. It it really is real. And I do think that NFL franchises are going to be like, Hey, like, what do we miss? Like what, like, or Carolina, like, okay, look, they were the first two with Bryce Young and CJ Stroud. And and not to say Bryce Young isn't going to have a great career because I think the situation he was put in in Carolina was brutal from, from the get-go. Um, but when you surround the pieces and you build every single thing around this guy and you have the attitude and the awareness outside of the locker room within whoever you're dealing with and being able to have be the face of the franchise. It's just super special. And it's not normal. That's what we have to understand. It's not normal. Like so many people miss on first round picks. You just alluded to them. They're not even half those guys aren't even in the league anymore. And with what he's doing, it's, it is, it is special. I'm curious what his individual workouts with teams looked like. Because that's the only place, as I've gone back and thought about this, of where he might have been able to show some of this stuff off. Whether it was the off-platform stuff, whether it was the arm angle type of things that we've seen. I truly wonder what some of those on-field throwing workouts were. Because he just seems like the type of guy who would just shine in that. And remember, he did well at the Combine. But the Combine is a little different than what they're going to put you through at a Pro Day workout. You're just throwing to guys from the pocket for the most part. I think that is my number. Oh my God. I'm about to go on a tangent. That is my number one thing that I hate. You can't show anything in on field workouts in shorts. You can show how strong your arm is. I hate the combine. I, (laughs) sorry, I don't like the combine for reasons that people are, are, guys are in their underwear showing off for scouts for grown men. Okay. Uh, these uh, these team workouts where they get reported, oh, he really dropped in status because he went 45 of 47. He missed two throws on it. Dude, it's the most ridiculous thing in the entire world. Put the game film on. What can you do between the white lines? Is this the player you want? That's how I think that scouts miss the mark on these quarterbacks they get so enthralled with what they do in their underwear at the combine or what they do at a private workout when no one else can know dude there's no one coming after you there's no pocket i think it is a data point that's all i think it's a data point it's ridiculous the problem it's it's stupid on so many levels don't tell me that i i don't disagree with you I think the problem is in a situation like Zach Wilson, right? 
where you have a guy who lights it up in that exact environment because he does have a really live arm, but then you watch him in college and he never had to deal with what would look like an NFL pocket for his entire the entirety of his final season at BYU. So I think, again, it's just a data point. And the only reason I say that is because at Ohio State, you didn't see him doing some of the stuff that he's doing right now. You didn't see some of the off-platform throws. You didn't see some of the changing of the arm angles. You didn't see some of the, even the no the no-step stuff that you're talking about where he's getting these throws off in a crowded pocket. There wasn't as much of that. Maybe we had a couple games where you had some flashes, but in a workout, are you sending guys at him? Is he having to move? Just the little things he does in space when he's having to avoid a free rusher, things like that. I'm like, I just would have been curious to see if you could pick up on some of that when you put him in those circumstances during a workout, because those are just the things we did not see for the most part on his tape at Ohio State that you are seeing now. Yeah. I still think the combine and those workouts are dumb. Well, the combine is silly. The combine, you're just throwing to guys who are like running go routes. I'm I literally watching his workout as you're talking just because I was curious. He's doing nothing. He's literally just dropping back and throwing to guys running the down slowest, the field. And it's like how guys under pressure perform. Okay, first of all, you're just in front of a dome throwing to guys you've never thrown before. Of course, you're going to look like crap sometimes. <laughs> in like, I don't know, I'm just... We could do a whole show on that, dude. Well, guess what? The combine's coming, so you you save those takes. We'll be ready to go. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Last thing I wanted to talk about here. Again, the AFC side of the bracket is phenomenal. It's as good as you could hope for, especially with the quarterbacks. But we're also getting two rematches on that side. We've got the Texans going against the Ravens again, which was so early in the season it might not matter. And we have the Chiefs going against the Bills for the second time this year. So with those two rematches in mind, when you're playing a team in the playoffs and you've seen them again in the regular season, how does the preparation change? Well, it depends. When, when were these? When were these teams? When did these teams play? Ravens, Texans. I think was week one or two. So okay, very, so very zero. early in the season, week one, according to Bauer. So it almost yep. doesn't matter whatsoever. The Chiefs nope. and the Bills was, I think, week fourteen, fifteen. It was later in the year. Just happened. So um, the Ravens, Texans game, week one. You're going to take nothing away from it. They're completely different teams. CJ Stroud. No one knew what they were going to do. Lamar Jackson. Honestly, the first five or six weeks of the year, he didn't look very good. And there were some growing pains with Todd Munkin and that offense that was receivers were leading the league weeks one through six because I looked it up and I was on NFL Network about it in drop percentage even over the Chiefs. So they have turned their both franchises around. Um, so you can't really learn a lot from that. So you're going to be studying the last five to six games, especially the playoff game as of late, to see what they're doing. Uh, you still got to be ready for the unexpected. I think that the Ravens are probably a little bit worried about that offense and CJ Stroud and what they're doing, even though the Ravens have a really good, I mean, the best defense in the NFL, I think that it's going to be an interesting take. Now, when you go to the other side of the spectrum and you go Chiefs Bills, I think you can learn a ton from that game. And they're going to be, it's going to be part of the breakdown because it was week uh, 14. And I think what you learn and what you see, the first thing as a quarterback, uh, when we would have rematches, even divisional, forget about the playoffs, which is a whole nother level, but we were in the same division. We're playing the Broncos twice. We're playing the, 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 the Chiefs twice or the Raiders twice. We would The first film breakdown that we would do when we came in on Tuesdays was we would break down and we would look at the, the rematch, right? The, the first game of the rematch. So if we were the Chiefs playing the Bills, 
the first thing that Patrick Mahomes, Matt Nagy, Andy Reid are turning on on Tuesday is that first Bills game in week 14. You're going to study that uh, backwards and forwards. You're going to see where did they have success against us? Where were the weaknesses that we can exploit in that game? And then what you're going to do, you're going to take notes on that. You're going to go back to your notes from the week 14 game, if I'm Patrick Mahomes, and say, okay, here's my notes on third down. Does it does it make sense? You're going to have these notes plastered on the, on the whiteboard the entire week. And as you go through the last four games of the Bills, okay, are they the same defense or are they not? If they're the same, then you're really going to pay attention to these 10 or 12 pages of the notes that you took week 14 of the Bills in your preparation uh, of, of the games and of personnel. It becomes really matchup-oriented in the playoffs. And so when you're looking at that sheet, okay, here's the third down plan. It's almost like a cheat sheet. You can almost get started a little bit quicker. It, it becomes in your, it, it becomes ingrained in your mind a little bit quicker. You have a better feel for what they're running defensively. There's always going to be these things that they throw at you that they're going to get away with. But I think that that's a big deal. And I think that's how coaches and players both look at these rematches. Okay. So let's say from that week 14 game through the game that they just played in the wild card round, there are drastic changes in some of the things that they're doing on defense. How do you separate that being the way that they thought they had to attack a certain offense with that being actual substantive changes in who they are on defense over that five or six week period. I think the, I think context matters. I think that the teams who they play matters. I, I know that when we were playing in the playoffs, we would throw out um, back in the day, we would throw out Lamar Jackson film. We're like, okay, okay they play, they, they play it completely different. We would throw out, um, there were some other teams that were just like so different on that side of the ball offensively and def- that, that that teams would play them differently. I think the biggest thing that you take away from, if you're the Chiefs, the biggest thing you take away is where did they have success against us? Was it third down coverages? Was it, okay, on all these times they were in cover two, we just didn't do very well against it. We didn't have our cover two beaters up this game. That's the data points that these coaches look at and that's how they will because you got to imagine if you do something that's right you're going to see it again plus other things so you got to be you got to be ready for what teams do well against you and it does come into play and then all the same same offensive game planning if there's a couple plays that worked against the bills you better believe that Andy Reid's going to dial it up again it's just going to be from a different personnel grouping it's going to be from a different formation all that stuff so there's a lot that goes into rematches especially this chiefs bills one because it happened so soon that's interesting so looking at the game since the chiefs game since the bills chiefs game buffalo played the cowboys the chargers the patriots the the dolphins before playing the steelers it seems like the cowboys would be the most applicable film to what you were doing and even that was only one week after you played them. So I assume it's going to be pretty similar in terms of approach, in terms of like their defensive identity to what they probably did against you the week before. You're not going to watch the Patriots game. You're not yep. going to watch the Dolphins game. Um, you might watch the Chargers, but it was Easton Stick. They did give them some some issues, though, and that's a really good offense. So I think it's the Chargers. I think it's the, the Cowboys game, and I think it's our game. And then they might pull some stuff like third down pressures because it seems to me that – I don't know. I, I haven't really dug into the defensive side of the film, but – on first and second down, McDermott's playing more too high shell coverage than mm-hmm. maybe he has in the past. However, on third down, there have been they have been more aggressive, at least in alignment um, with these double A gap mugs or these overload fronts that maybe they're not pressuring from, but they put a lot of pressure on the offensive line to block the four in different ways that they uh, that they're able to go out there. So I'd be interested to see that as well. There's a lot of different. There's a lot, so many different. Um, things that that you have to look for. But I think the thing that you're going to look for most is how did they have success against us the first time? It's interesting looking back at just the box score before actually doing a lot of studying of the game, which we're obviously going to do over the next couple of days. Uh, Pacheco did not play in this game. So you had 11 Clyde Edwards-Hilaire carries. That was really it. And other than that, they threw the ball 43 times, despite what I assume is correct about the amount of guys that they're putting in the box where you're just you're seeing a lot of so looking at it right now I can do this very quickly like I, I love modern technology so in week 14 the bills use six or fewer guys in the box on 82% of their total snaps which was the number one rate in the league that week just for context the dolphins lead the league at 63% on the season so extremely light boxes 
the Chiefs only ran the ball about 15 times, and they did not run the ball that efficiently. So and you'd have yeah, to assume. They did not Pacheco, right? Yes. So and then playoff Pat, man, he ain't sliding. He's 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 a threat with his feet too. And so I think that's a big deal because when you have these light boxes, when you have first and second down shell coverage, obviously you're going to have six-man boxes. And I talked about this in another show I did, and I wanted to make sure that since we are sort of previewing the Chiefs' bills now, I think the biggest thing to watch is the pre-snap stuff that Patrick Mahomes does on first and second down. I think that Andy Reid's probably going to have a lot of kill plays. What do those mean, Chase? Well, okay, they're going to have run, kill, pass, or pass, kill, run. That means if I have a run up, I want to make sure that I run it into a six-man box. If it's not, then I'm going to change plays, kill it to a pass. Or we have a pass play up versus too high. Oh, we don't like it. Let's kill it to a run play. So I think that is on a defense like this week when they don't do a lot of crazy exotic stuff you just have to have the right play on at the right time i i would expect that that's probably what they're going to do although i expected them in negative six degree weather last week to come out running the ball and mahomes was mahomes and just threw the ball almost every i don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole here because this is exactly what i'm going to be spending the next 48 hours of my life but the bills played a lot more man coverage on early downs than they typically do it was like almost a quarter of their snaps and then they played more cover two on third down so kind of flipping it on its head where you're playing a little bit more man on early downs than they typically did. So that little, you know, this is what you think we're going to do. This is what we're actually going to do. Harder to pull the wool over a team's eyes when you're doing it the second time around. So that little cat and mouse game between Andy Reid and Sean McDermott is going to be fascinating. And we will have plenty of time to dig into that over the next couple of days. For now, that is all we've got. As always, sincerely appreciate you guys listening. Please check out everything else we've got on the Athletic Football Show feed this week. Dane Brugler, Mock Draft 2.0, two rounds, available on The Athletic. Him and Nate broke that down on Prospects of Pros this week. Highly encourage you guys to give that a listen. We did a little coaching carousel update about the Seahawks, Patriots, and the Washington football team with our team writers for all three of those teams. So if you guys want to go listen to that, that is available in your feed. And obviously, our divisional round preview will be coming your way on Friday morning. Very excited to dig into that. For now, that's all we got. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.